0: Hello there, and welcome to What You May Have Mythed, where, for the first time, we are heading away from myth and delving into history. Specifically, a battle so significant that it was a turning point in English history. But before we get stuck in, let me remind you that if you have a suggestion for an episode, drop me an email at themythspodcast at gmail.com, or ping a message on Instagram or TikTok. Righty-ho. You may have guessed from the title which battle we are exploring today, yes, that's right, Hastings. On the 4th of January 1066, Edward the Confessor, King of England, died childless, thus leaving the throne without a hereditary heir. But that didn't mean that there weren't claimants to the throne, oh no. There were three men who believed that they were the only acceptable choice to be the next ruler of England. First, there was King Harald Hadrada of Norway, whose claim lay in a treaty made between the previous King of England, Harthacnut, and his father Magnus. There was William, Duke of Normandy, who claimed that Edward had named him successor when he had lived in exile in Normandy. And then there was Harold Godwinson, Earl of Wessex and the most powerful man in England, who the previous year had sworn an oath, potentially under duress, to William that he would support the Duke's claim. However, on his deathbed, Edward named Harold Godwinson, who also happened to be his brother-in-law, as the successor to the throne. And so, backed by the rest of the English nobility, Harold was crowned king in Westminster Abbey, where, funnily enough, the world witnessed the coronation of King Charles III earlier this year. So, three claimants, one throne. Harold was the king, but he and his advisers knew that challenges were coming. It was just a question of when and where. Harold had a younger brother, Tostig, who wasn't a very nice fellow. As Earl of Northumbria he was deeply disliked, so much so that in 1065 the district erupted into a revolt and Tostig was forced to flee. He sailed to Normandy via Flanders where he met with Duke William who, being infuriated with what had happened with the Crown, was plotting his invasion of England. Tostig then decided it would be good fun to launch some small raids on the English coast, the most significant of which occurred on the coast of Kent. But he was very unsuccessful and was quickly sent packing with his tail between his legs. He fled to Norway, where he joined with the claimant Harald Hadrada. Harald of England, meanwhile, was fearing an attack from William and so had posted the majority of his force on the Isle of Wight and his fleet in the English Channel. But for several months, nothing happened. Harald knew that the King of Norway and the Duke of Normandy intended to invade but towards the end of the summer, 1066, he was beginning to hope that the onset of autumn would deter them until the new year. In fact, on the 8th of September, many of the soldiers were given permission to return home, as documented in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. But barely days after relieving his troops, the forces of Harold Hadrada, a fleet of 300 ships, was spotted, and before long they had sailed up the Humber and the Ouse and taken York on the 16th of September. The Norwegian king, accompanied by Tostig, believed that he had caught King Harald completely off guard, and indeed he had. But he hadn't reckoned with Harald's intelligence, resolve, or ability as a commander. Nine days after seizing York and starting to get comfortable in his new lodgings, Hadrada was shocked and horrified to hear that the English army, led by Harald, were closing in. Not only had Harold managed to call back all his fighting men, but when they had all assembled, he had managed to march them the 185 miles from London to York in four days. The two forces faced each other at Stamford Bridge on the 25th of September, 1066. Before the battle began, a lone rider rode from Harold's forces up to Hadrada and Tostig. The mysterious person offered Tostig a reprieve and the return of his earldom should he turn on Hadrada. When Tostig asked what Harold would be willing to offer Hadrada the response was simple six feet of english ground a little more perhaps since he is tall and that is exactly what Harold gave him Tostig did not turn on the norwegian king and both he and Hadrada were killed in the ensuing battle 300 ships had brought 11000 viking soldiers over to england 25 ships were more than enough to take the survivors home. It was an incredible victory for the English king, and one that effectively brought an end to the Viking age. Incredible and very short-lived. On the 27th of September, William, Duke of Normandy, who had been waiting and waiting for more favourable winds, had finally managed to swiftly cross the English Channel and lead an army of between five to seven thousand cavalry and infantry at Pevensey on the Sussex coast. He promptly made his way to Hastings, fortified his position and began taking everything he could from nearby. He was a smart man, he didn't want to be caught too far away from his ships until he had beaten Harold and then could progress inland without fear of harassment. It took a few days for the news of William's invasion to reach Harold and I can imagine he was not best pleased to receive it. He gathered his troops, who were still recovering from the previous battle, and by a series of forced marches they neared Hastings on the 13th of October, covering over 200 miles in a matter of days. His men were exhausted. Harold was probably hoping for a repeat of his surprise that he had pulled off previously, but William was ready and marched to meet Harold. On the morning of the 14th of October, the two forces faced each other. Harold was positioned atop a rise, William at the bottom. Not ideal for William, but this time the Duke had the element of surprise, as Harold had not expected him until after he had at least allowed his men some rest. There were some significant differences between the two armies, most prominently the use of cavalry. The Normans were adept at fighting on horseback and relied heavily in their use. The English did not. Horses were for farming and pulling carts, not warfare. The Normans used crossbows and archers, but the English were dangerously low on bowmen, most likely due to their long forced march. The infantry that Harold commanded, however, were exceptional. They were disciplined and feared, and what's more, they had the high ground. His infantry were mainly armed with swords, battle axes and spears. Many of them wore mail shirts as well as conical helmets and either round or kite-shaped shields. Along the top of the ridge they formed a shield wall, an unbroken line nearly half a mile long. With their shields interlocked, it would be almost impossible for either the Norman cavalry or infantry to break through. About nine in the morning the trumpets were sounded and William's troops charged the line of Harold's soldiers. Despite the first assault of the English lines using infantry, archers and cavalry, the Normans were repelled and forced back. All the English had to do was hold firm behind the shield wall and let their battle axes do the talking. The Normans needed to get up the hill and fracture the wall, which would allow their cavalry through to decimate the English. After this first assault had been pushed back though, some Breton soldiers turned and began to flee. A rumour had reached them that William had been killed, which must surely mean that the battle was lost. As they fled, some of the English soldiers got a bit too excited and followed them, cutting them down as they chased. Seeing this, William, who was on horseback, charged towards the Breton troops, calling out to them that he was actually still alive. Seeing this, the fleeing soldiers took heart, turned and killed the English soldiers that had chased them down. The Duke, seeing how the English had reacted to his fleeing soldiers, then hatched a plan. He faked retreats. When his men fell back, sometimes jeering and cheering and egging each other on, many English would follow in pursuit. Then the Normans would turn back and charge at the morons who had tried to chase them. These fake retreats happened at least twice, and although effective at drawing out gullible men, it had little impact on the shield wall that held firm. For many hours the fighting went on, something that was highly unusual for a battle at this time in history but at long last the cavalry were starting to show why they could be so lethal. The English shield wall was starting to fracture under the incessant barrage, and there were now no longer enough English infantry to hold the ridge. A final cavalry charge brought down two of Harold's brothers and many of the other leaders of the army. It wasn't looking good for Harold, and it was looking exceptional for William. And then the icing on the cake for the Norman leader came when some news reached him. Harold was dead. An arrow from one of his archers had struck the English king in his eye. When the news of Harold's death had permeated throughout both armies, the English turned and fled, only to be cut down by the marauding Normans. A little over two months later, on Christmas Day 1066, William was crowned king, the third monarch of the year. What became of Harold's body is unknown, but this death brought an end to 500 years of Anglo-Saxon rule. William became known as William the Conqueror, and although it took him another five years to consolidate his rule, by 1071 England was completely and utterly his. The Battle of Hastings was immortalised in the Bayeux Tapestry, a 68 metre long tapestry that depicts many of the events leading up to and including the Conquest. So why was this battle so significant in the history of England? Well, 1066 saw the end of both the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons, and it brought in the Normans as their new powerhouse in northern Europe. The church in England was completely restructured. Most of the English nobility were replaced with allies of King William, and much closer ties with the continent were established, especially with France. This relationship with the French in particular would go on to create some of the most famous and violent moments in history. So there we go, our first dip into history. What did you think of it? If you get the chance, go and visit the battle site. It's a really good day out. And if you wanted to do some further reading about this area of history, I would highly recommend Mark Morris's book The Norman Conquest as a place to start. Right. Now for on this day in history, and sticking to a theme, on the 30th of November 1016, Knut the Great, the soon to be King of Denmark and Norway, claimed the throne of England after the death of Edmund Ironside. He would go on to rule what became known as the North Sea Empire, being King of Denmark, Norway, England and parts of Sweden all at once. In 1487, The first German beer purity law was announced in Munich by Albert IV, Duke of Bavaria. He stated that beer should be brewed from only three ingredients, water, malt and hops. And in 1876, the archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann found the so-called mask of Agamemnon in Mycenae in Greece. That's all from me this week, but drop me a message via email or on social media if you have an idea for an episode, or indeed you have a question about anything myth, legend, history or folklore related. And I shall talk at you next week for another episode of What You May Have Missed.